did not share during the prayer time, and I forgot to in the first service too, I want to keep Kimlin in our prayers, who she's lost her voice. So everybody come up and talk to her after church. Um, so, uh, but we want to keep, and I'll seriously want to keep Kimla uh, in our prayers that she's uh, feeling better and, and gets that, that voice back. Um, ah, I'll let that go right there. Um, but uh, we today begin this first Sunday in this season of Lent, which, which we began together, and I know many of you were with us here Wednesday night for um, our Ash Wednesday service. I know many of you are here because we had way more than we expected, and that was a wonderful um, joy. And uh, it was a great service, and, and appreciate uh, your being a part of that as we kind of celebrated the beginning of the season together. Um, on a side note, I, I couldn't help but laugh before the service. There is um, there's a couple signs that you can pick up on the difference between a smart pastor and a dumb pastor. <laughs> Don't you say a word. Don't even go there. My father's here, and I hesitated even going there. But a smart pastor will wear black pants for Ash Wednesday service, like Pastor Don did. A dumb pastor will wear khaki pants for Ash Wednesday service, like I did. Now, if you're not familiar with Ash Wednesday, why that matters is because um, you know, we do the imposition of the ashes. So as pastors, Don and I have our hands in the ashes at the end of the service. Our hands are caked with ash when it's over. So I don't know if some of you caught this or not, but during the service, I keep the battery pack for the microphone that I wear in my front pocket. Now, normally I've got Doug here, our sound guy, and so he turns me on and off. Not, on, not off enough for some of you, but he does that, just beating you to the punch. Um, <laughs> But he wasn't here. Ryan, my son, was kind of doing double duty. So I told him, don't worry about it. I'll just turn my mic on and off. So during the imposition of the ashes, I turned my mic off. Here was the problem. Khaki pants, <laughs> hands full of ashes, battery pack in the pocket. So I don't know how many of you saw the dance I was doing over here, reaching over, pulling the thing out. But I'm hoping by this time next year I'll have learned that lesson, not to do that again. Time will tell. So, but we, we've begun this season together in a, in a meaningful way. And what we're going to do in our time of worship during these six weeks that we worship together during Lent, with the exception of the one week that will be the cantata, the Easter cantata by the choir, uh, we're going to spend the time in our creeds in some of the statements of faith that we find in our creeds. Specifically the Apostles' Creed, but we're also going to look, and, and at times as it lends itself, to, to compare some of those statements as found both in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. Now, the difference between those two may or may not be familiar to you. We, we've read from both of them and recited them together at various times in our worship service. But if you have a hymnal and you want to grab a hymnal, from the chair in front of you, you find these two creeds on eight page 880 and 881 in your hymnals. Now, if you're not looking, just to give you a visual, the Nicene Creed is a full page. The Apostles' Creed is over here. It's about a half page. The Nicene Creed is, at least as a written document, as a written creed, it's the older of the two. It traces back to the year 325 A.D. 
so 17, yeah, 100 years ago, roughly. This creed goes back, and it was written at the ecumenical council where the Christians from around the world and church leaders gathered because they were still wrestling with what it meant to be a Christian, what it meant to follow Jesus. And there were these teachings that would start to emerge that challenged what had become some of the foundational teachings of the faith. And so all these leaders and, and, and theologians and pastors got together and they outlined the foundation and the doctrine of faith of the church. And that is the Nicene Creed that we still use today. Now, the Apostles' Creed emerged a little bit differently. See, now, the Nicene Creed, you, you, one of the interesting things is you immediately read the very first words. It says, we believe. It was the council that came together to define the faith and the belief of the church. We believe. The Apostles' Creed has a wonderful tradition behind it. The tradition of the Apostles' Creed is that the, the 12 primary articles of faith in the Apostles' Creed I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the, the church, and, and the, the professions that are found in the faith. The tradition is that the, the apostles each contributed one line to the creed. And if you've ever read the kind of story, it says, Peter said, I believe in God the Father Almighty. James said, and in his only son, Jesus Christ. John said, and it, it kind of progresses down that way. And that's why it's called the Apostles' Creed, because the tradition dates it back to the apostles. That's a great way to remember it, but it's not necessarily rooted in historical accuracy. It is rooted in historical accuracy in the sense this is the foundation of the faith that the apostles taught. But the creed, as it's written and as we have it in written form, dates back to about 700 A.D. But it existed in, in many variations hundreds of years prior to that. And it is a baptismal creed. Now, what does that mean? That means that when people were preparing for their baptism, and, and the early church very often, there was one Sunday a year, usually the Sunday, it would be sometimes on Easter, that the church would celebrate baptism. And it was a long process of preparation. And in anticipation of baptism, like we do today, there is statements of faith, professions of faith that are made. And very often, the person who is being baptized would be asked, what do you believe? Their answer? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day he arose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, the life everlasting, and the confirmand would be baptized. It is a profession of what we believe. Very often people will say to me, well, I don't know how to articulate my faith. I don't know how to put into words what I believe. This isn't the only way, but the creeds provide that for us. A link with the historic teachings of the church, our faith from the day that Jesus ascended to his Father. And it is a link that unites us together. Uh, let me go back to Ash Wednesday service. I shared this with you if you were here. But it fits here in this moment as well. One of the most common questions I am asked as a pastor and a United Methodist pastor 
is what is the difference between Methodism and Baptism, Baptists? What's the difference between Methodists and Presbyterians? What's the difference between Methodists and Catholics? What's the difference between Methodists and? And that's a significant question. That's an important question. That's worth what I'm proud to, and thankful to be United Methodist. And there's some wonderful things about our practice and theology that, that set us apart. But my general and usual answer to that question, if you were to ask me, is before we start talking about what makes us different, let's start with what makes us the same. Let's start with what unites us together. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these statements of faith remind us of what we believe, not just as United Methodists, but as the universal church. And I know there are exceptions, but as a whole, I don't know of any orthodox, evangelical, historical Christian faith practice that doesn't ascribe to the tenets of the creeds. They may not always profess them. They may not use it as part of their worship. But this unites us. And this is an important place. And for the next six weeks, we're going to kind of journey through some of the statements of these creeds. And I called the service, the sermon series, We Believe, even though the Apostles' Creed says, I believe, because it's important to remember, even when we recite this creed, we profess the individual nature of faith as we proclaim it in the communal body of Christ. So we profess faith in community. So it is what not just you believe and I believe, I pray, but what we believe. And so for the next six weeks, we're going to look through some of the statements. Now, let me begin with this kind of caveat, if you will, to this series before we get into our scripture. Um, we're not going to come close to touching all the f important truths of the Apostles' Creed in six weeks. We're not going to exhaust it. We're not going to answer every question. We're not going to touch on every article of faith. When I was a first-year seminary student at Duke Divinity School. My first year, we were required to take a theology course. The um, theologian in residence, the, the, the big name on campus, the this teacher that every Duke student wanted to take for theology was Dr. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Wainwright, British Methodist. Everybody wanted to take Dr. Wainwright because he was, you know, amazing as a teacher. My first year, Dr. Wainwright went on a sabbatical. So we didn't get to take him. And we were, as a, as a class, dejected. We're like, man, we're, we're going to get the, you know, the backup. We're, we're going to get the, the second tier. Because everybody wanted Dr. Wainwright. For that year, for that semester, Dr. Thomas Langford stepped in. Now, again, I know these names don't mean anything necessarily to you. But Dr. Langford had been the dean of Duke Divinity School years prior. He had been the vice provost of Duke University. He was one of the most well-respected and amazing teachers I've ever had. So our missed opportunity became a wonderful opportunity. The reason I share that with you is our entire theology course, three times a week for an entire semester, was built on the foundation of the Apostles' Creed for an entire semester. And we didn't come close to exhausting all the, the depth of it. So I know that we're not going to exhaust it. But I do believe that we can begin to be significantly 
deepened in our faith by it and that there's tremendous value in, in what we're going to do for these next few weeks. I also want to say there's, there's another kind of danger is that we're going to treat it as phrases at a time. Always remember this. While we're going to do that because it, it's the way that we have to approach it, Dr. Langford used to say that the Apostles' Creed is best said in one breath. And what he meant, what he meant by that was you can't tear it apart because everything fits together. And it's meant to be understood together. So we're going to section it with the understanding that everything we're going to talk about fits together. Every week fits together. And there's not a part, but there's a whole. And we're going to look at it in parts, understanding that it fits together. Dr. Langford's short little story, he used to, um, in class, some of you comment to me, wow, you know, you preach without notes, and, and you preach without notes, and, and um, I always have my fail-safe notes up here, but it's, it's um, you know, my style and the way I do it. Dr. Langford taught without notes. Theology, three times a week, uh, never had a note with him, and um, was flawless. But he would, he would be in class. Dr. Wayne, or Dr. Langford was a very quiet person, and he was the kind of teacher that when he got soft, you leaned in because you knew something was coming. And he would get soft occasionally. And he would close his eyes, touch his chin. And he would start to share with us words of Anselm or Augustine or some of the great fathers and patriarchs and matriarchs of the church or theologians of the church. Somebody once asked him, he said, Dr. Wainwright, why, why do you close your eyes? And he said, because, I mean, Dr. Dr. Langford, why do you close your eyes? And he said, I have a photographic memory. When I close my eyes, I read the page. I thought, that's just disgusting. <laughs> uh, but he was, he was great. And, and, and so I hope, I hope we can value from some of the time that we spend. And today, as we begin, we believe, we begin with the first phrase of the creed, we believe in God, the Father Almighty. I want to root that, as we always do in Scripture, and I want to read to start from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. These are words Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and, and they're words to direct their life as they live out their faith, and the way the faith, because remember, the, the, the faith we perset, pro profess is evidenced by the life that we lead. So he gives them instructions on how that life is led and then roots us back in the foundation of faith which motivates, which drives those actions. This is what Paul says to the church and what the Lord says to us. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, speak to our hearts, our lives, our faith. And through these words, draw us close to you. 
and close to one another. In Christ we pray. Amen. By some polls, 9 in 10 Americans believe in God. Other polls have it close to 7 or 8 of 10 believe in God. You know how polls can be, you can read two polls that have the same question and they come up with different numbers. And so when I was looking, I was just curious to how many in the most recent um, surveys profess a faith in God. And, and it's as high as 9 in 10. Most people believe in a God of some sort. We begin our creed with that affirmation. We believe in God. And with that, we are united with most people who have ever walked the earth. Most cultures, most communities have some semblance of a, of a belief and a faith in a God or a divine being or a world unifying spirit that is above and beyond us. That is the, the power behind all that that is. And we begin our creed with that same kind of affirmation. The danger is when we stop there, we profess a profound truth and we profess an incomplete one. When we say we believe in God, we're saying something significant, but we're not saying enough. And I think it's interesting to start with this, that those first four words, we believe in God, are unpacked throughout the rest of the creed. Everything we profess from that point on roots back into the first four words, we believe in God. And what I mean is the rest of the creed professes before us, and, and in, in sharing that, we profess what kind of a God that we believe in. Because that is the question. When somebody says, I believe in God, that doesn't tell me a whole lot. If I tell you I believe in God, that doesn't tell you a whole lot. It reminds me of the story, and I don't know where it came from. I hate when I use stories, and I can't give proper credit to whoever wrote it first. But th there's a story of a college chaplain, professor, man of faith, who a, a student walked in one day angry and frustrated and bitter and kind of said to him, I don't believe in God. And he was doing it to provoke. He was doing it to, to kind of agitate this, this teacher. He was doing it in this frustration with his own spirit. And instead of meeting resistance, instead of meeting anger or pushback, that teacher looked at this young man and said, well, why don't you sit down with me here and tell me about the kind of God you don't believe in? Because it's very possible I don't believe in that God either. And he used it as a bridge for conversation. He used it as a bridge to begin a dialogue about what it means when we say God. What it means when we say we believe in or we don't believe in. And so we begin with the, the foundation, which is we're saying, as do most people in the world, that we believe in God. And, and that is profound because remember the, the worldview that, that Judaism rises out of, that Christianity rises out of, which was a polytheistic worldview. There were many gods. What made the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so significant in the stories of Genesis is that they believed in one God. And it was 
different and it was unique and it was set apart, a God who had set his people apart. And so we begin with that belief in a singular God. But we have to begin to then, through our faith, understand who that God is. And so what is significant is not just the statement of what we believe in, but who that God we believe in happens to be. And so we believe in God, the Father Almighty. Now, allow me to flip those two words around, just for the sake of these moments together. In fact, the Nicene Creed, on the other page, if you looked at it, says, we believe in God, comma, the Father, comma, the Almighty, comma. So let's start with, we believe in God, the Almighty. Now, this is the image of God that I think most people, while we can't fully comprehend it, we can grasp it. This is the image of God that most of us have no problem with because we observe the world around us. Have you ever sat under the night stars and been overwhelmed by the vastness of creation? Have you ever sat at the edge of the ocean or the, the, the foot of a mountain or the cliff of a mountain, wherever it may be, and been overwhelmed by the beauty and the majesty and the power of the world around us? Most people believe that there is a power behind that. There is a creative force, a, a creation force in that. That is God Almighty. In fact, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, this is the God that we are introduced to right at the very beginning of all Scripture. Hear the words of Genesis 1, just the first few verses, uh, which I know many of you have heard before. But, but listen again to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God hovered over all the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And if you know the rest of that chapter of Genesis, the story unfolds as God speaks into existence. God creates all that there is. God Almighty, the one who Paul says is over all. So we affirm the omni of God, the om omnipotence of God, God who is all-powerful, the omniscience of God, God who is all-knowing, the omnipresence of God, God who is in all places. That's the image of God many of us first have when we are introduced to the faith, when we grow up in the faith. I remember as a kid, that was my most powerful awareness of who God was, the God who saw everything I did, the God who was aware every time I messed up. I might get away with it. Mom and dad might never find out, but God knew. And I didn't wasn't raised with a fear of God. I wasn't raised with a, an, an image of God that God who was waiting to get me. But I was always aware of that almighty reality of God, that omniscience of God. I could not outrun it. God was always there above all things. That is the profession of faith. 
Almighty. That's what the, the scriptures over and over celebrate, the power of God, the, the might of God. And so that in and of itself is significant. But there's a word in between, God and Almighty. It is the uniqueness of our relationship with God in Jesus. And that word is the Father. What we affirm in our faith is not just the God who is over the cosmos, but the God who is present within it. The God who is the creative power and the redeeming and sustaining power of our lives. The God who is above and, as Paul says, in and through. We celebrate a God who is personal. Who is personal. And that is the significance of Father. Now, Jesus revolutionizes this. Jesus introduces something into the faith that was deemed to be heretical in his time, that upset the religious leaders to no end because when Jesus talked, see, Jesus wasn't the, wasn't the first person that understood a, a father concept of God. You will find that in the Old Testament. You will find God referred to as father, but it is always this kind of distant, overseeing father. God is the father of the nations. God is the father of all people. That kind of is a little bit set apart. But when Jesus talks about God, he introduces something. He introduces a word in Aramaic you may have heard before. It's called Abba. He refers to God as Abba. Abba means daddy. For a child, it might be the very first words they speak. Remember, for those of us that have kids, when you were waiting for your son or daughter to speak their first words, and you were provoking your spouse as to whether they'd say mama or daddy first, okay, Abba, daddy. And it was absolutely startling in the time in which Jesus lived, for anybody to refer to God in such a deeply personal way. Now, here's what's interesting. I wonder how we would react. I mean, you think about it for a moment. I've prayed a lot of prayers starting Heavenly Father. It's not uncommon for the prayers we pray together, for you here, me, begin the prayer with gracious Heavenly Father. But I wonder how you'd react if next week I said, let's bow our heads, and I said, dear Papa, <laughs> Daddy, how you would hear that. Now, I don't know that you'd be offended, but I'll bet you'd be taken aback because even in our language, we don't use such a deeply personal connection. But Jesus did. But Jesus did. And over and over in the Gospels, he says, my father, my father. Now, when, when I speak with you and, and when my father, earthly father, is sitting right here, when we banter or I say, this is my father, you know that that connotes a very deeply personal relationship, that I have a relationship with him that other than my brothers, nobody else shares. Jesus has that claim with God. Jesus is the one son 
of God, the only Son of God. Again, we'll get to that part of the profession of our creed later. But that's that unique relationship Jesus has. But we got to remember that Jesus offers us something. In John chapter 1, we read these words. When Jesus is introduced to us in the very beautiful language of the Gospel of John, we find these words. To those who believed in him, being Jesus, he gave the right to be children of God. Jesus invites us into this special relationship. Because here's the other thing. Not only does Jesus over and over say, my father, but Jesus over and over says, your father. Over and over he says, your father in heaven. He is inviting those to faith in him, to have an understanding and a relationship with the God who is not just above and beyond, but who is in and through. A God who deeply cares about his children, who deeply cares about those who have been grafted into the family tree through Jesus. And so he says, Abba, Daddy, we profess we believe in God, the Father Almighty. And that is profoundly significant with who we understand God to be. We understand that we are invited into a relationship with a God who deeply cares about us. You are invited into a relationship with God who profoundly and powerfully loves you, who sees you and places a relationship with you as the most treasured of his heart's desires. A God who loves you, Father. It's interesting to think about that word. Now, here's what we know. That's not a pleasant image for everybody. Not because of God as Father, but we know that that language, that word, can be troubling to us. Because I know that some of you did not have good relationships with your Father. I know some of you don't like to think of God in that way because it brings painful memories. We have to remember, and I don't devalue that reality at all, but that we don't understand God in relationship to our human fathers, but really that what we understand is the very best of human fatherhood or motherhood is but a reflection of who God is. We understand it differently. And so our images and our, our memories are shaped. And, and I challenge us to maybe think differently sometimes if, if our relationships with our fathers were, were, were challenging. In fact, think about some of the relationships, not personal, that we've had with other fathers through the ages. For really, fatherhood in our society has been defined by two forces. It's defined by our human relations. But what else has shaped our understanding of fatherhood? Somebody said it. Oh, yeah, he's... Television. Television. Every generation has their image of fathers painted through the television. Now, this was fun. We've done this in each services. For you, when we talk about fathers, television fathers, who do you think of? Father Knows Best. That's come up every service. Ward Cleaver. Ozzie and Harriet. It's funny because this tells you what generation you grew up in. Who else? I heard 
Bill Cosby. See, that's the one I went. Cliff Huxtable was the image, was the image for me. My three sons. Anybody else? Richard, or um, yeah, uh, Howard Cunningham. Howard, yeah, that hasn't come up yet. That's a, that's a good one. Andy Griffith. Andy Griffith. That's another one that hasn't come up, but that's surprising. Images of, of fatherhood. I, I thought about some of the ones from my childhood and growing up. Uh, Cliff Huxtable was the one. Um, Mike Brady. Um, uh, Charles Ingalls. All right. And I grew up watching reruns of Bonanza, Ben Cartwright. So now there's a danger here because we don't project God through these false images. But we understand that the very best, and it's interesting, we chose all the positive examples. Occasionally this morning, um, Al Bundy's been thrown out there. Um, uh, um, Archie Bunker has been thrown out there. Yeah, yeah, you know, those, and those are not always the, the, those are maybe more balanced, but, well, I don't mean from personal experience, sorry. I just kicked you right under the bus, didn't I? Um, but, but the very best we understand of fatherhood is but a pale reflection of who God is. And let me add this to the picture. Remember that when we understand God as Father, it's not just the best of fathers, but we need to complete that picture. And remember for a Ward Cleaver, there was a June. For a Charles Ingalls, there was a, a Caroline. For a um, Mike Brady, there was a Carol. For, for each of those, for our relationships, when they've been good, very often it's a father and the qualities of motherhood are encapsulated in the nature of God. That we never, ever shortchange and narrow that image. But it's the very best of what that looks like. That's God's relationship with us. And to give you an understanding, Jesus tells a story. To let you know how valued and loved you are, Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 15. And the paraphrased version of that story goes like this. Man had two sons and the youngest son was a spoiled brat. And the youngest son came to him and said, Dad, give me my inheritance. I'm not willing to wait for you to die. And he takes his money, and he goes and he moves away, and he blows it on parties and wild living, so much to the sake that he has nothing left, and he's starving, and he's digging for food wherever he can find it. And he finally decides, you know what? I'm going home. I'm going home, but the best I can hope for is that Dad will just let me be a servant just so I can have food that he'll let me be a servant because I have really wrecked this relationship. And Jesus tells us that when that father saw his son in the distance, and that means the father had been looking for his son in the distance, that he ran to meet him, and he embraced him, and he welcomed him, and he forgave him, and he restored him, and he celebrated him. In the same way, that God receives us because he's our Abba, Daddy. Not just the Father. I mean, not just the Almighty, but the Father Almighty. If you hear nothing else today, hear this. Jesus makes it very clear. You are loved. You are treasured. You are valued. 
And you have a heavenly Father who wants nothing more than to throw his arms around you and receive you into the eternity of his embrace. And that is possible through Jesus, and we'll get to that. But that's what it means when we say we believe in God. What kind of a God do we believe in? Well, we start with this. We believe in a God who is over and in and through all that he has made. We believe a God who is almighty and a God who is Father. And let that bless you today. You are loved by your Abba. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Papa, we thank you that we are loved. May that love bless our lives, encourage us in faith, and strengthen us for service as we go forth to live with thankful hearts for the love you have shown us. In Christ we pray.